Welcome to Moral Leadership Bootcamp. Here, we come together as Jewish humans devoted to the study of both morality and leadership, as seen through the lens of ancient texts and modern experiences. For just a few minutes each week, we'll discuss lessons culled from the timeless texts of the Jewish people, but even more often, from the hard-earned experiences of the world's heroes and villains of the past and sometimes present. Welcome back. I want to apologize for how long it took me to get this out. I'm going to explain it a little bit later, but not right now. I want to start by saying that recently I really started wondering about the word leadership and what it really means anyways. I wondered if it's just a word that we use to feel good about ourselves. My cousin Adina, after the last episode that we did, reached out to me and said, you know, really resonated with me what you said because there's so few leaders who really take ownership over their lives and accountability over what they're doing and how they're doing it. And it really made me wonder, like, if leaders aren't even taking ownership and that's something that we're used to, like, what makes them a leader anyways? What are leaders? I was thinking about this in terms of Tal Ben-Shachar's research. Tal Ben-Shachar is a positive psychologist who writes a lot about happiness, and he talks about the philosophical concept called a grounded grounder. A grounded grounder in philosophy means a question that can't get any deeper. So for example, if I say to you, what do you want to happen tomorrow? And you say to me, I want to win the lottery. And I say to you, why do you want to win the lottery? And you say, because I want to buy myself a new car. And I say, well, why do you want a new car? And you say, so people will think I'm cool. And I say to you, why do you want people to think you're cool? Right? So as long as I could keep asking why, it's not yet a grounded grounder. And what Tal Ben-Shachar was arguing is that happiness is a grounded grounder. If I say why, and your answer to that question is, because I want to be happy, because it will make me happy, you can't really ask, why do you want to be happy? Happiness is as deep as it goes. So I started wondering about the same thing in terms of leadership. Where does the rabbit hole end in terms of what leadership actually is? I can't pretend that I really know how to answer that question yet. I'm really curious to hear all your thoughts on it. I'm certainly still developing the answer and the question still stings me. But interestingly, the question of what leadership is, what leadership isn't, what's needed for leadership, and what the difference is between leaders and followers is actually at the heart of where history takes us next in our journey. I want to give you a forewarning in terms of the history, and you'll probably expect this if you've been following along, but if you thought it was bad, it's only going to get worse, which is actually both a sad and weird fact of the Second Temple period, but also kind of surprising. So we started with the Hashmonaim and the five Maccabee brothers who are around halfway through the Second Temple period, and after them, with the sole exception of Shlom Tzion and Shimon ben Shetach, who we already met last time, it literally just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And again, if you're following, you'll find that pretty surprising and hard to imagine, uh, but it's true. So here's what happens next, which is Alexander Yanai ruled for 30 years. Unfortunately, his queen, Shalom Tzion, who is a fantastic ruler, only rules for nine years before she dies, again, alongside Shimon ben Shetach, who was the Nasir of Abasin at the time and was her brother. When she dies, it seems, she dies without clear orders of which of her sons should be the one to take over after her. So upon her death, her and Alexander Yanai's firstborn, Hyrcanus, immediately declares himself both king and Kohen Gadol and takes over the leadership. But at the same time, his younger brother, Aristobulus, actually claims that all along, his parents intended him to be the king. And he starts fomenting an actual formal rebellion against his older brother. And he's especially popular with many of his father's soldiers. So thus begins a civil war between the two brothers, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, the sons of Alexander Yana and Shalom Tzion. And within one little generation of Shlom Tzion and Shimon ben Shatach, these two brothers managed to destroy all the economic and religious prosperity and all the internal and external peace and security that Shlom Tzion and Shimon ben Shatach had managed to establish. So without going into too many painful details, Aristobulus, the younger brother, 
seems to be stronger and certainly seems to have more backbone than his older brother, Hercanus. He seizes power and Hercanus sort of unfortunately doesn't give up. And he infamously calls in the aid of his friend and advisor, the Idumian Antipater, who you might recognize his name. You'll see why soon. Antipater is arguably not even a Jew. With Antipater's help, Hercanus and those loyal to him manage to siege the base on Mikdash in which Aristobulus and his supporters are fortified. So in this context, we actually learn the surprising fact from Josephus of the death of Choni Hamagel. You might recognize the name Choni Hamagel. Choni Hamagel means Choni the circle maker. There's a famous story about Choni Hamagel in which there was a drought among the Jewish people and all the prayers for rain were going unanswered. And Choni Hamagel drew a circle and basically demanded of God that he, Choni, was not going to move from the circle until God sent rain to the Jewish people. And God does it. God sends rain. Interestingly, there's actually a conversation in which the sages want to excommunicate him for this because they felt like he was being a chutzpinyak to God, which he arguably was. And Shimon ben Shattach comes to his aid and basically says, like, listen, the, the rules are different for Choni Amagel. Like, he's just, he's just a different breed of, of sage than the rest of us. And he's let off. So Choni Amagel apparently survives both Shalom Tzion and Shimon ben Shattach. And at this time of the civil war between Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, Choni Amagel is still alive. And being the most famous miracle worker of the Jewish people, the supporters of Hyrcanus bring Choni Amagel to the front, in which Hyrcanus and his supporters are barricading Aristobulus into the Beis Amikdash. And they demand of Choni Amagel to place a curse on Aristobulus and his supporters in the Beis Amikdash. So Choni Amagel obviously refuses to do this, and the supporters of Hyrcanus press him, and he refuses to do it again, and the supporters of Hyrcanus press him again. And finally, Choni Amagel sees that they're really not going to give up. So he gets up on his soapbox, so to speak, and he cries out in a loud voice to God, and he says, Hashem, these men before me who are demanding this of me are your people, but the men inside who they're demanding that I curse are also your people. So I pray to you that you listen neither to what these men outside want to do to the men inside, and also not to what the men inside want to do to these men outside. That was his prayer. Obviously, the supporters of Hyrcanus are not happy with this, and they stone him and kill him. But God apparently listens to what Choni Hamagel had asked him to do. And so the civil war between these brothers ends, not with the decisive victory of either of the brothers, but with the weaker Hyrcanus basically opening Judea to an alliance with Pompey, who was the famous general of Rome at the time. He happens to be married to Julia, the daughter of Julius Caesar, interestingly. Hyrcanus throws open the gates of Jerusalem, welcomes Pompey in, who basically takes over Jerusalem and the rest of Judea. This is in 63 BCE. And at this point, Judea becomes a client state to Rome. Pompey, unsurprisingly, establishes not Hyrcanus or Aristobulus, but Antipater and his son Herod as the Roman delegates to rule Judea. And thus ends the independence, both politically and religiously, that had been enjoyed for a short time by the Hasmonean kings. The most important religious figures of this time are Shmaya and Avtalion. And also unsurprisingly, what we continue to see here is the further division between the official ruling authority of the king of the Kohen Gadol, of the now Roman delegates who are ruling Judea, and between the sages whom the people actually follow. So this tension is actually brought down by a Chazal that's really fascinating. That's what we're going to look at here. That tells of a conversation that happens between the high priest and Shmaya and Avtalion. So again, the Kohen Gadol at the time was Hyrcanus. The Kohen Gadol at the time was the king. 
The background that we have to know before we read this very short Chazal is the fact that Shmaya and Avtalion are either both converts or both direct descendants of converts. And interestingly, if you think about it, there's hardly a better foil to Hercules than Shmaya and Avtalion. There's hardly a better foil to a king who has also seized the position of being the Kohen Gadol than converts who had to gain their position through their own grit and talent alone. So here's the conversation that happens between them. The rabbis taught, it happened that a high priest once came forth from the sanctuary and all the people followed him. But when they saw Shmaya and Avtalion, they forsook him and went after Shmaya and Avtalion. Eventually, Shmaya and Avtalion came to take leave of the high priest. He said to them, may the descendants of the heathen come in peace. They answered him, may the descendants of the heathen who do the work of Aaron come in peace. But the descendants of Aaron who do not do the work of Aaron, he shall not come in peace. So again, this fascinating sort of spat that happens between the Kohen Gadol and Shmaya and Avtalion, and the essential thing happening here that the people at first follow the Kohen Gadol, but when they see, when they're compelled by something about Shmaya and Avtalion, they leave following the Kohen Gadol king and start to follow Shmaya and Avtalion, the descendants of converts, instead. This is complicated a little bit by the message that Shmaya and Avtalion leave for all posterity in Pirkei Avos. So here's what they say in Pirkei Avos. Ahovas hamalacha, love work, usana es harabanus, hate positions of mastery over others, ba'altis vadala rashos, and do not seek familiarity with the ruling authorities. So love work, hate positions of leadership, and don't try to get close with anyone who's in a position of authority. That's their lasting message. So I didn't quite understand the significance of these two passages until last week. I got a lot of extra time to think about this because unfortunately my three-year-old was sick for a week and then was in the hospital for almost a week. And so I lost two weeks of time to continue to learn, prepare, and record other things. And instead I mulled this over for all that time. And I still didn't really get it, I have to admit, until when I was in the hospital, good friends of ours, the Kahans, dropped off a care package, which was a backpack filled with toys and puzzles for my son and a book for me. It was a beautiful gesture. The book is called Turn the Ship Around. It's by L. David Marquet, who was a nuclear submarine commander in the 90s, where having functional nuclear submarines was a large part of America's strategic deterrence in the Pacific. So David Marquet, the author of the book, as a new submarine officer, actually inherited the worst rated nuclear submarine in the Navy. It was the USS Santa Fe. Only three of the 135 crew members had chosen to re-enlist when their term was up last time. And Marquet says that in submarine officer school, they used video footage from the Santa Fe to show them what not to do and how not to run a submarine. So Marquet's first captaincy is of this ship, where he is given the challenge and also the chance to turn the ship around, which ends up as the title of his book. So I want to talk about where Marquet starts, which turned on all the light bulbs in my head about the Gemara that we've read above, about Shmaya and Avtalion and the high priest, and also Shmaya and Avtalion's lasting message in Pirkei Avos. So Marquet starts in a fascinating place, which is calling into question the basic assumption that we have about leadership, which really mostly comes from famous Western novels like The Odyssey and Beowulf and also from popular movies about this charismatic hero leader, especially the military charismatic hero leader. And the basic assumption is this, that there are leaders and that there are followers and that the best systems have leaders and followers and that the best leaders have followers. 
Now, this was an assumption that I was also making without ever having realized that I was making it. In both thinking and practice, where Marques starts in his leadership of this worst-rated submarine is to get out of that model of leaders and followers. He instead argues that the best approach is a leader-leader model in which the leader does not effectively lead followers, but in which the leader effectively turns followers into other leaders, in which the leader empowers his subordinates to also become leaders. So here's an example of what he did on the Santa Fe. He said that when he took over the Santa Fe, their normal way of functioning, which he said happens in most submarines, was that every significant decision that the crew had to make, they'd shunt up the line to him. So it was a classic strong leader model. He made all the important decisions and their major preoccupation was just not messing anything up. So he changes this almost immediately. The way that the crew approached decision-making, approached challenges, and approached his involvement in those decisions that they were making. He trained them almost immediately. Instead of coming to him with the big decisions and asking him to make them, instead he trained them to approach him and say, sir, I intend to, and then tell him what they intended to do, and then give their reasoning, and he would say only very well, and then they would do it. So here's an example from the book. Throughout the day, the officers approached me with, I intend to. Captain, I intend to submerge the ship. We are in water we own, water depth has been checked and is 400 feet, and all men are below, the ship is rigged for dive, and I've certified my watch team. And he would say, very well. So only once reading Mark Hayes calling into question the leader follower model in its entirety did I understand the tension that we actually encountered in this Gemara that we read about Hergonus's challenge to Shmaiva Avtalium. The high priest is focused on and is upset with which leader the people are following. Are they following him as the king and Kohen Gadol, which he feels like they should? Or are they following Shmaya Vav Talion as the better leaders of the people, as the religious leaders of the people? But what he feels like are the less qualified, the less worthy leaders of the people solely because of their heritage, solely because of where they're coming from. Shmaya Vav Talion don't respond at all about who the people are following. They respond to the leader about whether or not the leader is accomplishing his own responsibility as a descendant of Aaron. And then their message in Perkeavos is exactly the opposite of the leader-follower model. What they say in Perkeavos is that same leader-leader model that I didn't notice until Marquet pointed it out to me. Their message in Perkeavos is stop being so concerned about who's leaders and who's followers. It becomes a hashgafic moral value of the time to be suspicious of leadership, to distance yourself from those who need to be leaders, from those who demand that you follow them, and instead to love work and hate positions of authority and to not get close to other people in positions of authority. They want to distance the people from feeling like they have to be in a position of a follower and either they're following the Kohen Gadol or they're following Shmai Vav Talion. They say, you're not following anybody. Whereas the Kohen Gadol is concerned about which leader the followers are going to follow, Shmaya and Avtalion are concerned that the people not be so obsessed with leaders at all. And instead that they take responsibility for their own portion in life and for their own plate and for their own lives. I love that lesson and I love the way that Marquet makes that lesson very relatable for us through that one phrase, I intend to. The I intend to phrase is essentially one of the tools that turns followers into leaders. I think it's important we use it more ourselves, that we encourage other people, just like Shmaya and Avtalion did, to stop trying to figure out which leader they're going to follow and instead to step themselves, to step ourselves into positions of leadership. And one tool in our tool belt to do that is to use ourselves and to encourage others to use this phrase, I intend to fill in the blank. Thanks for joining this episode of Moral Leadership Bootcamp. 
Looking forward to learning with you again next time.